The priests of Nippur played a significant role in promoting Enlil to the highest god in the pantheon. Enlil's ascendancy was further reinforced when he lectured King Naram-Sin and prophesied the fall of the Akkadian dynasty, as seen in the cursing of Akkad. This event left a lasting negative impression on the new Sumerian kings, leading to a biased view of Akkad after its collapse, as evident in their lamentations. Enlil's main temple stood in Nippur, and he was considered the mythological father of the city god, Ninurta. To establish his authority, Enlil assimilated several of Ninurta's myths. Hymns from later periods describe how Enlil granted rulers kingship, a role previously associated with Inanna. Despite Enlil's rising influence, Inanna's preeminent position was not easily displaced, as demonstrated in the hymns of the Third Dynasty of Ur. During the Third Dynasty of Ur, 2112-2004 BC, Sumerian culture experienced a revival in the southern city-states, following the fall of the Akkad Empire. The royal dynasty of Ur III originated in Uruk, and they brought the city goddess Inanna with them when they moved to Ur. The dynasty was named the Third Dynasty of Ur, as it marked the third instance of the divine grant of kingship to Ur, according to the Sumerian king list. During this period, Ur III's kings engaged in diplomatic relations with Elam and Mari, marrying their daughters into friendly royal families. The dynasty lasted about a century, during which a significant bureaucratic system was established. The state collected and transported commodities from various provinces to a central point. Trading connections with places like Megan, probably Oman, and Dilmun, present-day Bahrain, were vital for overseas trade with India, where exotic products like carnelian stones were obtained from the mysterious land of Meluha. Literary and administrative writings were prominent during this era. Tablet scribes were highly valued, and they composed literary texts alongside administrative records. The teaching of writing took place in a house of tablets called E2 Dubba. Private tablet schools operated within residential areas, where teachers instructed their pupils. King Ulgi, c. 2094-2047 BC, was known for establishing numerous tablet schools nationwide. Sumerian literature mainly originates from this period, but it should be noted that the monarchs of the time often manipulated history to suit their needs. Inanna's relationship with the kings is evident in many hymns they commissioned, describing her love and support for the rulers. Ceremonial wedding nights were celebrated in the temple of Inanna in Uruk, symbolizing the king's union with her as her beloved husband. In the time after the fall of the Akkadian Empire, a ruler named Utu Hegel rose to power in the city of Uruk. His reign was marked by constant battles against the Gutians, who had taken control of a significant part of the region. The Gutians, originating from the Zagros Highlands in the east, launched fierce attacks on the land. King Utu Hegel held a special connection with the goddess Inanna, the revered deity of Uruk. Ancient hymns spoke of the assigned roles of Enlil and Inanna, who played significant parts in the affairs of these kings. One poem described how Utu Hegel achieved victory over the Gutians and gained Inanna's favor. Enlil, the supreme ruler of all lands, chose Utu Hegel, the mighty and unyielding king of Unug, to eradicate the threat of Gutium, a menacing force that had violently opposed the gods. Gutium had captured the kingship of Sumer and caused havoc, wickedness, and violence to plague the land. Enlil entrusted Inanna with restoring the kingship to Sumer, and she willingly supported Utu Hegel in his mission. Inanna, seeking assistance, turned to Utu Hegel, the ruler of Uruk. Enlil had initially sent the despised Gutians to punish the land, and now Inanna relied on Utu Hegel to expel them. The people of Uruk and Kulab were persuaded to support Utu Hegel's cause as he claimed the backing of Inanna and her husband, Dumuzi. The plot thickened as Utu Hegel received support from Enlil, bolstering his position and weakening the Gutians, who eventually surrendered their king to Uruk. Despite the courtly poet's creative interpretations and embellishments, the Gutians were partially defeated. Nevertheless, Utu Hegel's reputation and influence grew, and he benefited from the prevailing narrative. Following Utu Hegel's reign, another king named Urnama came to power, 2110-2095 BC. He conquered Lagas and parts of northern Mesopotamia, proudly adopting the title of King of Sumer and Akkad 
in his songs of self-praise. Despite enjoying immense prosperity during his rule, Urnama's victory was short-lived, as he was mortally wounded on the battlefield after seven years. He moved to Ur following his brother's death, and his time in Uruk ended. During his reign, Urnama witnessed tremendous growth and wealth in his realm. Trade with Dilmun on the Persian Gulf flourished, and he boasted of constructing canals and bringing opulence to the land in his hymns. Agriculture thrived with abundant cattle and bountiful crops. King Urnama oversaw the construction of many temples, the most famous of which was dedicated to the moon god Nana. The kings of the Akkad dynasty had a tradition of aligning their families with the gods, and Urnama identified himself with this lineage. Sumerian mythology connected him to esteemed figures like Enmakar, Lugalbanda, and Gilgamesh. After Gilgamesh's passing, Ninsun became Urnama's mother through these mythical ties. Urnama recounted a tale of his mother selecting him for an extraordinary destiny. Note, the original script focused on the reigns of two kings, Utu Hegel and Urnama, highlighting their battles, alliances and divine connections. In ancient times, by admiring the appearance of his seed, Suan infused Nana's beauty into it when it was placed into her womb. As a result, I, Utu, was born and became a ruler over the land. Enlil, the powerful god, gave me an auspicious name during my birth, while Nintud assisted in the process. From conception in my mother Ninsun's womb, it was evident that I was destined for a bright future. Unama's future was also assured by the gods, and he was highly regarded as a shepherd by An and Enlil. He performed the sacred marriage rite with the goddess Inanna, and they met in the Gipar, clad in linen on a sweet-smelling bedchamber, with girina plants. As the god in Kimdu, he brought prosperity to his people by ensuring they had excellent food and skillfully tending to his sheep, leading to their significant multiplication. Urnama's love for Inanna brought flourishing to the country, and without her support, his prosperity as a king would not have been possible. However, tragedy struck when Urnama was severely wounded in battle against the Gutians and died unexpectedly from his injuries. This incident caused deep dismay among the gods, as expressed in the lamentation, the death of Urnama. The king's mother, Ninsun, grieved endlessly, and the land suffered with crops decaying and cattle dying. Urnama distributed gifts to the underworld gods in the afterlife, and was chosen to issue underworld judgments alongside Gilgamesh. The funeral rites mirrored those discovered in the royal cemetery of Ur, an ancient burial site. As the upper world mourned, the lower world celebrated. Urnama's wife lamented the loss of her husband, realizing he would never again be with their children or see his young daughters grow up. She felt overwhelmed and trapped like a boat in a storm, with no strength to moor herself. The hymn recounts her anguish, and the guards set up to keep her confined. Although not present at Urnama's fate, the goddess Inanna had been away on important matters, and Enlil had modified his judgment behind her back. Inanna's sacred marriage rite was meant to grant Urnama a long life, and her absence during the critical moment was a matter of concern. However, the hymn emphasizes that she was not responsible for the unfolding events. When Inanna learned about the situation, her rage was unleashed, causing chaos and destruction. She expressed the importance of observing written laws and upholding justice at the god's place of sunrise. In this ancient tale, we see a mix of divine influence, love, tragedy, and the consequences of decisions made in life and beyond. Inanna speaks of written laws, which are the immutable decrees made by the gods, Namtar or Emi, that cannot be altered, as it would disrupt the cosmic order. She reveals that her sacred shrine, Iana, has been elevated high on a mountain, protected by her holy Gipa, and only her chosen shepherd in his prime can enter. She emphasizes the importance of her strong and capable shepherd, whose growth would bring benefits like lush grass and herbs in the desert, or a steady riverboat. According to Inanna, just like Dumuzi, Urnama will experience a revival after death, akin to the regrowth of grass and herbs, by encountering Inanna in the Gipar. Because of this solace, Inanna declares that though Urnama may have passed away, his name will live on eternally. He will be remembered for the canals he constructed, the fertile lands he developed, the reed beds he drained, and the fortresses he protected. His fame is secured, and his descendants shall inherit his legacy. 
It's worth noting that the enumeration does not mention his battlefield victories, legislations or temple building, as pointed out by Vilka. After Urnama's reign, his son Sulgi ascended to the throne. There was a possibility that the menace of the Gutians still lingered due to Urnama's violent death, as lamented. During Sulgi's rule, Sumerian culture experienced its pinnacle of prosperity, and though he was likely very young, he effectively governed the vast and complex state bureaucracy. Ulgi appointed his daughter Enietziana to honour the moon god, and he strategically married his other daughters to his vassals. Sulgi faced fierce battles with the Gutians, as evidenced in the year names and the conscription of Ur's sons as archers. Like his father, Sulgi maintained cordial relations with the gods, viewing Ninsun and Lugalbanda as his ancestors and considering Gilgamesh as his brother. He even participated in the sacred marriage with goddess Inanna, an unprecedented act among his predecessors, and became a god during his lifetime, adding the Dingia sign to his name like Naram-Sin of Akkad. The twenty-fourth year of Sulgi's reign marked his military campaigns against the Gutians, as recorded in numerous clay tablets and hymns about him. In one such hymn, Sulgi explains how he secures support from a well-chosen arrangement of Sumerian gods, including his mother, Ninsun, and Lugalbanda. Notably, Nintu, the nurturing mother of Ninlil and Enlil's protector, along with Nana, the moon god, are among those who protect and support Sulgi. Curiously, despite invoking many divine helpers, Sulgi does not mention his divine spouse, Inanna, the war goddess par excellence, in this heavenly lineup for battle. The next part of the script vividly describes Ulgi's heroic exploits on the battlefield in great detail. With his skilled use of a throw stick and sling, he swiftly dispatched the enemies of Suma, mowing them down like locusts or fish. He showed no mercy to the rebels from foreign lands, sparing only the young children while seeking revenge. Ulgi's wrath extended to those who had destroyed Suma, as he devastated their lands, uprooted crops and trees, and left a destruction trail in their cities. Gutium's people were scattered like grain across foreign lands. Upon his triumphant return, Ulgi visited the temples of the gods who had supported him, presenting his spoils of war to Enlil and Ninlil. Enlil, overjoyed with Ulgi's fate, declared it to be a happy one. A prologue needs to be added to Ulgi D. Him, and scholars like Jacob Klein suggest that Ulgi X might be a sequel, as it lacks one. The text describes Ulgi's return to Ur, including visiting Inanna's shrine. It portrays an intimate encounter between Ulgi and Inanna, his queen, as they engage in ritualistic activities together. Inanna expresses her admiration for Ulgi and decrees his destiny as a shepherd of all lands. She lists his exceptional qualities and assures him of the success that awaits him. Inanna pledges to support Ulgi in battle, acting as his attendant and representing him in important assemblies. She encourages him throughout his campaigns, stating that her divine father chose him to be a shepherd. She acknowledges his generosity in providing for E. Anna, the sacred shrine, and highlights his rightful place on the lofty dais and shining throne, wearing the brilliant crown and royal garb. In a poetic and intimate tone, Inanna mentions various aspects of Ulgi's physique and abilities, praising his fast running, accuracy in archery, and proficiency with weapons. She lovingly remarks on his worthiness, fitting perfectly as a battle mace wielder, and even playfully acknowledges his delight in her embrace. Overall, this part of the script portrays a powerful and passionate exchange between Ulgi and Inanna, highlighting their deep connection and the divine support granted to Ulgi's reign as a shepherd and king. Our connection will last a very long time and be filled with joy. I pray that A will never alter his mind about what he has chosen for you. We beseech Enlil, who is in charge of determining our destinies, to keep them the same. He was dealt with in such a manner by Inanna. Ulgi was no different from other great kingdoms, which either sought worship from their citizens or commissioned enormous monuments of themselves to display their authority. Even though it was pouring rain, there was a storm, and there was a howling wind, Ulgi A was able to run the 160 kilometers from Nippur to Ur in just one day. He is an amazing runner. It was a contest of wills between the northern and southern prevailing winds. Lightning and seven different winds came rushing down from the skies. The lightning and storms that occurred during the earthquake were responsible for causing it. 
The water from the ground was combined with the water that fell from the sky. The impact of small and enormous hailstones was felt all over my back. Despite this, the monarch did not show any fear. Instead, he rode over the desert like an ass, and honoured Nippur and Ur on the same day, by performing this brave act. In the palace established by An, my brother and travelling companion, the hero Utu, and I drank beer. My singers complimented me while seven Tigi drummers played in the background. At the dinner, I was joined by my husband, the Virgin Inanna, known as the Lady and the Delight of Heaven and Earth. These hymns shed light on these kings' desperation to legitimize their rule. Their right to rule is justified by the use of political power and the application of ideological strategies. The king states in the hymn Ulgi-e, also known as the Testament of Ulgi, that the hymns the poets have composed about him at the gods' command must never be forgotten. As a result, the king had these hymns written down line by line in holy heavenly writing in the house of the wisdom of Nisaba, which he regarded as significant works of scholarship. The king observes that the indestructible celestial writing has a lasting reputation and that he will be remembered for all time. Let there be glitter in my songs like there's silver in the mine. They are required to be carried out at every cult location, including the shrine of the new moon. Please, Enlil and Ninlil, accept my sincere thanks each morning and evening for the meals Nana prepares. He instructs the priests serving in the Ekur temple of Enlil to sing about his wisdom and brilliance till the end of time so that his legacy would be remembered. In this way, Ulgi contributed to the enhancement of the prestige of the tablet schools by having as many scribes as possible copy the hymns and songs about him, Adab, Balbail, Surname Sub, Tigi, etc., and pass them on to the subsequent generation. As a result, numerous hymns about Ulgi are still around today. As a result of the singing of these hymns, Ulgi is transported to heaven while at the same time being transported back to earth, Amar Sin, 2046-2038 BC. Despite the lack of clarity around Amar Sin's ascendancy, Sulgi was blessed with 17 sons and at least 31 children. Since Amar Sin was dethroned by his brother Su Sin, the length of Amar Sin's rule has yet to be discovered. Su Sin is Amar Sin's successor. It's possible that neglecting or disparaging Amar Sin's recollection was on purpose following the argument between the brothers. Following what Sulgi had described, his successors continued along the same route. The topics that predominate in Amar Sin's correspondence are the water economy and the emancipation of those who were held as enslaved people rather than military concerns or diplomatic negotiations. His correspondence, much like the correspondence of other monarchs, has yet to be recorded by scribes. Amar Sin is only mentioned in two writings, describing how he could not reconstruct the temple dedicated to Enki. This is a topic that is prevalent throughout the Curse of Akkad. Naram Sin had little success repairing Enlil's temple in this hymn because the gods would not grant him permission. We can deduce that the gods have turned their backs on the monarch because there was no response to Naram Sin's attempt to appease them by dressing in mourning attire. However, the king covered himself in mourning garments without an answer. Amar Sin is an Unheilshersher, a horrible king who ruled only to harm the country during his reign. He found himself in the same position as his predecessor. Su Sin, 2037-2029 BC Su Sin would only rule briefly after succeeding his brother Amar Sin, who had previously held the throne. Su Sin, the penultimate king of his dynasty, began construction on a wall that was 180 kilometers long between the Euphrates and the Diyala River during an attack by the Amorites, of whom there would be more later. This wall was constructed to halt the Amorites' progress. He referred to this endeavour as the wall withholding the Amorites, Murik Tidnim, but it was ultimately unsuccessful, and the Ur III dynasty would end during the reign of his successor, Ibi Sin. The heritage and culture of the Sumerians established by the Ur III kings would, however, be carried on by the future dynasties. It was discovered that the lyrics of a few songs written about Susin's father matched the work done by his father, and the subtext confirmed Inanna's position as a love goddess. The songs were written about Susin's grandfather. The following song, which is not very well known, is about Susan's mother, wife and concubine. 
However, it needs to be clarified which woman is playing which role, or who is speaking to whom. Both Sulgi and Susin can be traced back to divine determinatives, D, which are as follows. It was Abysimti who gave birth to the Holy One. It was the Queen, Nin, who gave birth to the Holy One. It was the Queen, Nin, who gave birth to the Holy One. My Abysimti, my beam of the garment of delight. My Queen, Kubatum, has set up her warp beam so that she can start weaving. It is a sight to behold, my lord, my one who is appropriate for a mane of hair. It is the only one of its kind, my Dusin, because I uttered the Umun, emesal for Ien ruler, gave me a present. The Lord gave me a gift because I exclaimed an exclamation of joy. The Lord blessed me with lapis lazuli seals that resembled golden pins and presented them to me. I was blessed with a ring made of gold and silver from the Lord. I pray that the Lord may fix his gaze on me for the beauty of your presence. I am grateful to you, Odysseusin, for the gifts you have given me, and I pray that I shall find favour in your eyes. The people of your city would treat you with the same compassion and understanding that they would if you were a disadvantaged person. It is known by the name Su Sin. I wish my son of Dolgi that it would curl up at your feet like a little lion cub and purr. The beer served by the barman is rather tasty, my dear. Her genitals are sweet, exactly like her beer. Beer tastes as good as in her mouth, and her genitals are just as delicious. A pleasantly sweet light beer, my Susin, who made me happy. My Susin, who made me happy. My Susin, who made me happy. I adore my darling D. Susin, who is cherished by Enlil, my king and the deity of his land. Dao is used in the construction of the Balbale. The broad public associates Inanna with Bao, who is portrayed as a Balbale singer in this song. Who speaks what language, and where can I hear it? Because the poem lords Abysimti for being the woman who gave birth to Susin, it is abundantly evident that she is Susin's mother. The term Mainin is used to allude to Kubatum, while the components of Abysimti are poetically compared to the parts of a weaving loom. It is unclear if a lady is singing praises to her body or to Kubatum's voice because she appears to need clarification about both roles. Because she was given priceless presents by Usin, Kubatum is thought to have been a Luka priestess. It is possible that she was the Nin of Usin. During the excavations on the Iana precinct in Uruk, archaeologists uncovered two expensive chains of Usin. One of the chains bears the inscription Kubatum, which translates to the beloved luxury of Usin, while the other bears Tiamatbati, which translates to the beloved luxury of Dusin. It is possible that Usin presented these chains to the Luka priestesses of Uruk as part of a sacred marriage ritual. The question of whether or not the Luka priestesses played the role of Inanna when they were visited on New Year's Day by King Usin, or whether this was the thousand-year-old rite depicted on the Uruk vase when the N ruler paid his respects to the N priestess of his spouse Inanna has yet to be answered. Both of these scenarios are possible. The title Lukur was given to the Queen of Ur III, although it wasn't used until after the reign of Ulgi. Before that, the title of the Queen was Dam, Lugal, which literally translates to Woman of the King, or just Nin. During his reign, Luigi was elevated to the status of a god, and the Dingir symbol was placed before his name. This led Steinkeller to hypothesize that the title Lukur had something to do with Ulgi's ability to divine the future. In the same way that a god was presented with a temple and a priestess known as a Lukur, a god-king was presented with a priestess known as a Lukur to marry or concubine. This tradition was carried on in the same manner as it had been by Ulgi's descendants. The Isin dynasty reigned from 2017 to 1794 BC. Despite this, the third dynasty of Ur in Ur came to a catastrophic end, devastatingly impacting the population. Ibisin, the final king of Sumer, reigned during an endless time marked by conflict and drought. As a result of the acute lack of food, many people had become disoriented and sought sanctuary on the outskirts of the Ur III nation. But due to the intense pressure exerted by the Amorites, these territories were hazardous. The defensive wall Su Sin built in front of the land to keep the Amorites from settling there could have been more effective. It has been hypothesized that these Amorites belonged to nomadic tribes that inhabited the steppe and had cattle, sheep, and goats as their primary livestock. 
Michalowski maintains that many Amorite people had settled in the cities, where they had gradually integrated into the national population. During the reign of Ibi-Sin, there was a disagreement with a senior official named Ibi-Era, who was stationed in Mari. Ibi-Era was tasked with arranging the delivery of a significant quantity of barley to Ur, but for whatever reason, he could not complete this assignment. As a direct result of his ambitions to stage a coup, he likely kept the stock to blackmail the king of Ur. Alternatively, he was probably unable to arrange for his own men to collect the cargo, since the region was too dangerous to travel by cargo boat from Mari to Ur. After Ur's food supply ran low, the region experienced a severe famine, likely followed by epidemics. The Elamites launched their invasion of the deserted land from the direction of the east. As a result of Ibisin's capture and transportation to Elam in chains, Ur III's reign ended. Ibisin was the final monarch of Mesopotamia. Ibi-Era did not create the Izin dynasty until a decade had passed since the Elamites had been expelled. He named the dynasty after where his family had made their home. Despite possessing considerably smaller domains and less power than their ancestors, Ibi-Era and his successors tried to continue the Sumerian civilization as heirs to the Urn kings. The monarchs of the Isin dynasty were traditionally married to the goddess Inanna in her role as the divine spouse. Idin Dagan, who reigned from 1974 to 1954 BC and was the third king of this dynasty, details in the renowned song that comes at the end of this chapter how he celebrates the sacred marriage ceremony with Inanna. As the fourth king Ismidagan, 1953-1935 BC, he refers to himself as the beloved husband of Inanna, and he asks the god Enlil to give the goddess Inanna, the eldest daughter of Enlil, to Ismidagan as his spouse in the hymn Ismidagan I. Give Inanna your beloved daughter as a wife. Their embrace might last a lifetime. May he find joy in the lap of the one who gives him life for many days to come. The Lhasa kings of the Lhasa dynasty, 2025-1763 BC, also ruled by divine grace, and the opening prayer of the Lhasa dynasty addresses Rim Sin as a princely divine leader. The Lhasa dynasty lasted from 2025 BC to 1763 BC. Isin was ultimately victorious over Lhasa, leading to the conclusion of their war. In the north of Sumer, King Hammurabi had gradually extended his power and attentively observed the skirmishes between Isin and Lhasa. This caused Lhasa's triumph to be short-lived, however. King Hammurabi was the reason for this. When he thought the time was right, he went on a conquest throughout the entire region of Lhasa and the former Isin, and he incorporated both of those areas into his state. As a consequence, the Neo-Sumerian period ended. The language of communication during the subsequent Old Babylonian period was Akkadian rather than Sumerian, and divine signs were no longer placed before the names of the kings. Divine Kings It seems absurd that kings who ruled during the Neo-Sumerian period imagined themselves to be gods. However, in ancient times, the gods had not completely withdrawn into an unreachable afterlife. Because he was the ruler of the human world, the king was much closer to the gods than any other mortal being could ever be. This is because the gods were at the forefront of the creative process. It was commonly believed that all ancient kings in the Near East were either the gods' sons or their husbands. The only explanation for the king's power was that it was a privilege bestowed on him by the gods. On the other hand, we discover that references to this divine status are extremely infrequent in the letters the kings wrote to their subordinates. During the time of the king, the servants were obedient to him, but they did not address him in the same manner that they would have addressed a god, because he was the most powerful authority in the land. The cylinder seals of the Ur III dynasty do not depict themselves wearing the divine horn crown. Rather, they depict the same crown used in the past, a brimmed turban with a metal ring. It was more closely associated with the visible symbols of power, such as the throne, the scepter, and the royal seat, all of which were gifts from the gods and held spiritual importance for the king. The king could fulfill his responsibilities and exercise divine authority over his subjects through these sacred emblems. In the ancient world, divinity was more closely associated with the office of kingship than with the king himself. Because of this, the king had an ongoing responsibility to demonstrate 
that he was appropriate for the position and that the gods had chosen him to rule the land. It took the kings an innumerable amount of hymns to gain the gods' support, because, with their support, the king could fully realize his power, and it was highly unlikely that he would be successful on the battlefield. As a consequence of this, kingship was, on the one hand, rather mundane. On the other hand, the king's elevated position was continually reaffirmed through the performance of rituals. Hymn to Inanna Dilbert Idindagan, who lived between 1974 and 1954 BC, is credited with writing the famous panegyric to Inanna. In it, he reveals the divine marriage connections of the king. The king extols the closeness of his relationship with the goddess Inanna, referred to as the Venus Star, Dilbat, in the heavens. Enlil and Inanna make decisions about the future of the land together, accompanied by a diverse group of musicians and singers in their retinue. They are Inanna's followers. On their right are men dressed as men, and on their left are women dressed as women. They compete while wearing their hair in chignons. The young men who parade Inanna wear neck stocks similar to those worn by the Ugitu girls, and their foreheads are covered. The blades of the swords and daggers wielded by Kogara are covered in blood and gore from their battles. The land is rich in resources, so there will be plenty of food and drink during the celebrations. Venus and the moon shine brightly in the sky, and in response, people make offerings and burn incense on their rooftops. At night, as the man makes love to his wife, Venus smiles and nods in approval. The first fruits are still presented on the altars, the storerooms of the land are bursting at the seams with food, and the depictions of abundance are still the same as they were on the Uruk vase. On the Uruk vase, nude bearers carry the field's produce as an offering to Inanna's temple. On the first day of the new year, the king makes preparations to meet Inanna, and Idindagan, who is playing the role of Dumuzi, shares Inanna's bed and makes love to her while performing his role. Day Day, the king and Inanna are all seated on a podium together, while the palace is merrily banqueting and feasting. All indications of abundance and well-being are presented to the public before them. It is abundantly clear to everyone in the populace that the king has won the backing of the all-powerful goddess of love, Idindagan, the most holy union hymn to Inanna Dilbat. Within this hymn, the goddess Inanna and the king Idindagan comprehensively explain the sacred marriage ritual. The following are some couplets. Greetings to those who ascend. Greetings to those who ascend. Greetings to the mistress of the skies who ascends. Greetings to Inanna, the great lady of heaven, I greet you. I will pay respect to Inanna, the holy torch that illuminates the heavens. She is the one who shines as brightly as day. Inanna, the goddess who rules over heaven. Greetings to the mistress, Inanna, the eldest daughter of Suen, who shines with a brilliance that is unrivaled among the Anuna gods. I will perform a song that lords her splendor, especially for the young lady. The good wild cow of Anu is said to stand in the heavens. On earth she is revered and known as the lady of all lands. Eridug was the location where she was bestowed with divine powers by her father Enki, and it was the location where she received these powers. He entrusted the lordship and the kingship to her care when he decided. She is seated with Anne on the great dais, and the future of her land is being decided by Enlil's actions. The gods of the land work together with the divine energies of the land to bring them to their full potential every time there is a new moon. After prostrating yourselves in front of the great ones, the Anuna gods, please stand there in prayer and supplication on behalf of all the lands. My lady's judgments are based on the laws of the land. She performs in front of her people, who have blackheads. Inanna, holy Inanna, was combing their hair so that she could look her best. She wears colourful bands around the back of her hair to represent Inanna, who is revered by the gods and is brought into their presence. They are greeted by the holy Inanna, dressed in the leather of divinity. Holy Inanna is guarded by the reliable man, Lu Tuzi, and the proud lady known as the Doyen of the great wise women. They parade before the holy Inanna with men's clothing draped over the right side of their bodies. It is a privilege for me to extend my greetings to the magnificent Lady of Heaven, Inanna, on the left side, decorated with women's clothing, and the holy Inanna parades in front of the other worshippers. I extend my greetings to the Great Lady of Heaven, Inanna.
To win Holy Inanna's approval, there is a competition where people skip rope with different colored ropes. I extend my greetings to you, Inanna, the eldest of Suan's daughters. Inanna's dagger and sword parade before her. The holy priests of Inanna carry daggers in their hands as they parade in front of her. When they process before the holy Inanna, they splatter blood all over their swords. While blood is being poured onto the dais, other drums, including an Allah drum, an M drum, and a Tawakul Tigi drum, are also played in the Gwena Hall. The bright star of Venus shines in the evening, filling the holy heavens with great light. The people gaze at her in all lands as she ascends like a warrior. A man purifies himself, and a woman purifies herself. In their yoke the oxen throw their heads. Dust is stirred up in the sheep's pens by the sheep. It is because of my lady, the animals of Achan, god of cattle, the savage creatures of the plain, that my life is blessed. Under the broad heavens live the four-legged animals. Gardens, orchards, reed beds, fish of the deep, birds of the heavens all hurry to their beds. The entire universe bows down to her, as well as many people. My lady is provided with food and drink by the matriarchs when she calls for them, and refreshes herself in her land when she requests it. Play is made festive in the land. Taking pleasure in their spouses is a pleasure for young men. My lady looks down with joy from heaven. Holy Inanna parades before them. I praise the young lady Inanna, who in August in the evening. It is impossible to describe the grandeur of this evening, lady. When the storehouses of the land are full of fine food, and all the lands and black-headed people are gathered, those who sleep on the roofs and those who sleep by the walls come up before her with their cases. Then she identifies the evil and makes her orders known. The wicked are destroyed by her judgment of evil as evil. A good fate is determined for the just by her favour. My lady looks down with joy from heaven. Holy Inanna parades before them. Inanna, the lady exalted to the heights of heaven, is August. Inanna is a young woman I praise. Her grandeur reaches the boundaries of heaven. She is exalted to heaven's heights. As the lady, elevated as high as the heavens, ascends above like a warrior, she is admired by the land, the lone star, the Venus star. There is trembling throughout the land because of her. Black-headed people bow down to her. He directs himself by her as he travels on the road. She raises her head in her yoke as the oxen bow. Those who live with her prosper in the land's storehouses. Inanna is the center of everyone's attention. I have prepared the best of everything for my lady amid heaven, where the plain is pure, where it is good. As a forest of aromatic cedars, incense offerings are transmitted to her from roofs, rooftops, and the rooftops of dwellings. Alum sheep, long-haired sheep, and fattened sheep are sacrificed to her. The earth is purified for the mistress by them. She undergoes purification rites. Ghee, dates, cheese, and seven kinds of fruits are placed on the land tables as first fruit offerings for her. Her light beer and dark beer are poured separately. My Lady Bubble drinks dark beer, emma beer, and emma beer from the Gunjar and Lamsari vat. The black-headed people will gather in the palace, the house that advises the land, the next stock of all foreign nations. The river of the ordeal is marked by a dais for Ninigala. A divine king stays with her there, New Year's Day on the Rites Day, to determine all countries' fates. On the day-day of the disappearance of the moon, the divine powers can be perfected by inspecting the faithful servants during the day-day, for my lady, a bed has been set up. My lady's bed is made with esparto grass and cedar, and covered with a coverlet. After bathing on the joyous coverlet, my lady finds sweetness under the bed. It is for the thighs of the king that she bathes them. She bathes them for Idindagan's thighs. The holy Inanna washes with soap. Oil and cedar essence are sprinkled on the ground. Holding her head high, the king goes to her holy thighs and those of Inanna. Ama Usumgalana lies beside her and massages her holy thighs. When the lady made him rejoice with her holy thighs on the bed, holy Inanna made him rejoice with her holy thighs on the bed. Inanna embraces her beloved spouse. She lies in bed with him and says, Idindagan, you are indeed my beloved. He pours libations, performs purification rites, heaps up incense offerings, burns juniper resin, and sets out food offerings and eagle mar bowls. She shines like daylight on the throne dais as the sun shines. Her table is set with abundance and celebration in abundance. She is treated to a lavish banquet by him. She is surrounded by black-headed people. 
Alnar instruments with sweet-sounding tones drown out the south windstorm. A bed has been prepared for Edin Dagan and Inanna to have intercourse behind closed doors. In fact, we should not take this hymn too literally, since it is a poetic and symbolic description of Edin Dagan and Inanna's close relationship, enhanced with positive metaphorical images by the court poet. The next day-day, however, Idin Dagan sits alone in a niche, and Inanna is shining alone in the sky. So who was playing the role of Inanna that night, and with whom did Idin Dagan spend the night, is unknown. The rite may have been performed by a statue of Inanna, or perhaps nothing ever happened, and Inanna was only present virtually. The literature has proposed several solutions, including priestesses such as Luca, In Danger, Nugig, the Priestess, and even the Queen, a prophetic oracle and a monarch sitting atop the throne hymns and images were used to communicate the king's will to their subjects. The significance of divine kingship and the role that the goddess Inanna played can be better understood with the aid of artifacts known as presentation seals or royal gift seals, which depict a servant of the king paying his respects to the king. This technique was used in the 3rd millennium BC by the Akkadian king Naram-Sin to depict himself on his famous stele as striking a pose similar to that of the sun god. Because the kings of the second millennium used cylinder seals to spread propaganda, there was a drastic reduction in the variation in the images depicted on them. This suggests that the palace may have been able to dictate the iconography that was depicted on the seals during this period. It is appropriate to conduct a formal audience under the seals of his servants. The king is always enthroned, with his seat elevated on a raised platform, higher than his servants so he is immediately visible as the sovereign. For a subordinate to have unrestricted access to the king, they were required to obtain an introduction from a reliable court intermediary. His servants stand respectfully before the king, wearing fringed cloaks with the ends folded over the shoulders, having their hair cut close to the head, and making the Kiri Utag gesture with their right hand raised to their nose. Because this was a divine event, the attendees were not to be considered typical. The image on Harhammer's seal depicts a goddess taking Harhammer by the hand and introducing him to Urnama. Harhammer appears to be embarrassed. Although Urnama is not mentioned anywhere in the texts as a god, the seals demonstrate that his kingship already had the attributes associated with divine status. A goddess is the one who presents her to the audience. She is always depicted standing behind the servant with both hands raised in front of her face and palms facing outward as she does so. Lama is a goddess who provides protection. The king's seat is designed with a bull's legs, and the holy crescent of the moon god is placed above it, to denote that the meeting is taking place in a magical setting. The phraseology used in the inscriptions on the seals began to more and more closely resemble that of the representations on the cylinder seals. In addition to the name of the king and any epithets he may have, the name of the owner of the seal, his official status, and sometimes even the name of the owner's father, they also declare that the owner is under servitude. It was possible to differentiate cylinder seals with an inscription that ended in his servant, Aradzu, from those that had a much longer inscription that read, to his servant, the king, has given, Aradani'ir in Nabar. Seals bearing this latter text were intended for use by the highest court officials and officials within the royal family. In contrast, Aradzu seals were designed to be worn by common servants who held a lower station. This was done so that a clear distinction could be made within the court hierarchy between nobility and common servants. Because the Ur three dynasty kings had developed a vast bureaucracy covering the entire empire, they desired to have a close relationship with their subordinates. The distribution of seals was a visible representation of the king's authority. After being given the seal, the servant was responsible for carrying out actions on behalf of the king and taking part in the concept of divine kingship. In cylinder seals, the king is depicted seated on his throne to emphasize the divine status of his office. This is demonstrated by the similarities between the king and seated deities on the seals. In other scenes, a worshipper is shown a god or goddess for the first time. God can be identified by his horn crown, Kunaki's garment, and Kunaki's blanket. As a direct consequence, God gives the impression of being seated on top of his own time while the king stands before him. Several city rulers, including the Amuna Ensi, were depicted on cylinder seals in this manner. 
The owner's personal deity was the god or goddess mediating between the two. On the seals of the Third Dynasty, a significant development can be seen in that instead of a god, the king is depicted sitting on his throne and receiving his subordinates, instead of the traditional depiction of a god. He wears a royal turban with a rolled brim, rather than the traditional divine horn crown comprising horns from bulls. It is common practice to cover the king's seat with a kaunaki's rug or blanket to signify his divine status, and the king himself wears a kaunaki's mantle to signify his divine status. Since the sun in the sky is in the ideal position to observe all of the activities that take place on earth, the sun god has always served as the highest judge in the country, and the king also made righteous judgments, just like the sun god did on a cosmic level. Ibisin refers to him as the king who made the right decisions among the gods. Ulgi was called the highest judge in the land. This is reflected in the cylinder seals, which show the king taking his rightful place as the sun god. Irene Winter suggests that deified kings are portrayed in the same manner as the sun god Utu. On cylinder seals dating back to the Akkadian period, the sun god is depicted as emerging from the gates of heaven with flames emanating from his shoulders. This scene takes place above mountain ranges in the east. By utilizing the Sasari, he shortens the duration of the decision-making process by half. Dikud, Akkadian, Parasum, refers to rendering a verdict through severing, cleaving or splitting. Only the king ever holds the cup on cylinder seals. The bull-horned god is never depicted doing so. This tradition dates back to the time of Ulgi and continues to this day. Sasari is not worshipped by the king in the same capacity as the sun god. There is a link between the seal of Puabi and scenes from banquets in the third millennium, where attendees are seen holding cups frequently. But as Irene Winter points out, the cups in these banqueting scenes look pretty different and are held distinctively. As a result, she is left wondering whether the cup depicted on the royal gift seals might have something to do with the oil oracles. To make this prediction, the Baram priest had to drop a few drops of oil on the water's surface and then observe how the oil formed circles on the water's surface. The cup's capacity would need to be significantly reduced to serve this function. Claudia Fisher thinks that the item in question is a miniature cup made of bronze or copper. Although it is not an essential utensil, it is believed to symbolize royal power and prestige when held by the king with only two fingers. Since the cupbearer was the highest official in court and exercised supervision over the extispacy, the king held the metal cup as the divine cupbearer and protector of the divine order. The cupbearer was the highest official in court and exercised supervision over the extispacy. In addition, there is a need for clarification regarding the connection between the cup and extispacy, as well as the reference to the cupbearer. Given that the kings of the Ur Three dynasty wrote their name with the divine determinative, it seems unlikely that they would compare themselves to subordinate servants from their administration. The cup wasn't the only thing the king held in his hands at the time. Getting in touch with the will of God, maintaining current awareness of the God's plans, had always been an absolute necessity. Me, also known as the laws of the universe that cannot be altered, has been significant since ancient times. Abzu, a subterranean freshwater basin, was where the ME was created. The god Enki was responsible for its protection. However, Inanna successfully diverted their attention away from Enki in order to bring them back to Uruk. During the third dynasty of Ur, a new concept of the supernatural entered the picture, which threw the concept of the ME into disarray and caused it to fall apart. The Namtar describes this as the concept being considered. Namtar literally means that which exists and is used in the sense of fate. As a result, the phrase to cut or to decide can also be interpreted as meaning fate decision. Even though the ME was a part of Enki's and the goddess Inanna's domains, the concept of Namtar was primarily associated with fate because Enlil decreed it. This was the case because Namtar was a part of the ME. After ascending to the highest position among the gods, he worked up to this position during the third millennium. Since the Asaru that was cut by Utu can be seen on seals that date back to the third millennium, this provides evidence that Utu, and not Enlil, was the one who made the initial decisions. The Emi and the Nam-Tar were two distinct entities with very different characteristics. 
The ME is said to have existed even before the gods in Sumerian cosmology. However, only Enlil possessed discretionary power over the Namtar, and Enlil apparently delegated this power to the other gods. When a human is born and the umbilical cord is cut, the fate of the newborn is decided by the goddess of childbirth. The gods chose the fate of the upcoming year at the beginning of the year, the fate of the upcoming month at the end of the month, and the fate of the upcoming day each morning as the sun emerged from the underworld. These decisions were made following the cycles of the year and the months and years. The eternal and unchangeable laws of the ME were notoriously difficult to alter, but the decrees of Namtar were possibly more subject to revision. Seers, exorcists and kings were able to exert influence over the Namtar, because Enlil was the one who controlled and delegated their power. Magic could sway the gods, convince them to choose a more favourable destiny, and even determine whether or not they possessed the authority to do so. However, it did make sense to make an effort to sway the gods' decisions before they were carved in stone, given that their choices appeared to be irreversible. Janis Polonsky researched ancient texts in ancient Mesopotamia to learn how decisions regarding one's fate were made and communicated to priests then. Because the futures of heaven and earth had already been decided, now was the best time to attempt to sway the decisions that the gods would make. When the sun god opened the bolts of heaven's doors and ascended to his throne to preside over the gods' judgments, the king and his offering priests would perform a lengthy ceremony to commemorate the event. This would take place every morning at sunrise. When the king arrived at the temple, he brought the sacrificed animals with him, and then he elevated his head, the Sumerian term for this action is Sa'il too, to contact the sun god. Polonsky says the sun god contacted the king when he threw his eye at him. Kings would travel to the temples of the gods and present them with extraordinary offerings, all in the vain expectation that the gods would bestow upon them a favourable destiny in return. When it was the turn of the Sumerian king, he assumed the sun god's identity and received his subjects' complete respect. In exchange, he rendered divine justice to his petitioners, representing the divine world in his realm. Because of this symbolic role that the king plays within the political and religious traditions and his function within the appropriate context, he is considered a divine figure. The image of the king on his throne is a metaphor for the rising sun, which we see depicted on cylinder seals. This metaphor is used to repeatedly reinforce the hymns that are sung about these kings. As the god of the sun, one of his duties is to stand atop a dais and greet worshippers. Idindagan. A relates how the goddess Inanna greeted the king upon his arrival at her temple. There, Idindagan A says, the goddess Inanna sits enthroned on a great dais, just like the sun god Utu, and she shines as brightly as the daytime. Similarly, the king's role as supreme judge requires him to administer justice in the same manner as the sun god. In this regard, the king is a manifestation of the sun god. He is even described as the sun god of the land of Sumer, Dutu Kalam Ma, whereas Hammurabi describes himself as the legitimate king, the son of Babylon, who brings light to Sumer and Akkad. The ruler himself is also a source of sunlight for the country, knowing the fate of his subordinates. In the 17th century in France, King Louis XIV continued a practice that had been in place for a very long time, the role of Inanna in determining the course of events. The goddess Inanna was given a significant part to play within the ritual context that decided people's destinies. The god Enlil exercised dominion over the Namtar, while the goddess Inanna maintained her authority over the ME. After all, she had taken the ME from Enki and was referred to as the mistress of countless ME in the hymn of Enheduanna. The first part of the hymn describes how Inanna captured all seven ME and is now the keeper of the divine ME. The ME is currently being held in her breast, clasped by her hand after being picked up, hung and held in her hand. The second couplet of the hymn to Inanna Dilbert and the sacred marriage of Idindagan may reference Inanna's role as the goddess of fate determination. The ME was presented to her by her father Enki, in the Ab in Eridu. He bestowed upon her the titles of lord and king upon her. She is seated with An on the great dais, and the future of her land is being decided by Enlil's actions. At the time of the new moon once a month, 
The gods of the land come together to hone their divine abilities in her presence. The gods of Anuna prostrate themselves before the Great Ones, while they pray for the welfare of all nations, while they stand before them. My lady's judgments are based on the laws of the land. In front of her, there is a procession of people with blackheads. According to these verses, Inanna and the god Enlil decide what will happen to the land. However, in the beginning, Inanna chooses what will happen, and Enlil and Anne cannot decide anything without her. During the Ur III period, another song of praise to Inanna was written for the inauguration of her temple in Nippur, which was built by King Ulgi. This song was performed at the temple. In these verses, Inanna is called Ninagala, which translates to Lady of the Palace. She is once again referred to as the Mistress of all Emi. You can be called the Lady of all Me, Ninmi Ara, and no deity can compete with you. This refrain bears a striking resemblance to Enheduanna's hymn, Mistress of Countless Emi, Ninmi Ara. Ninagala, allow me to regale you with tales of the splendor that is your home. You rise from the grass after the first watch of the night, grip your battle mace like a warrior, wrap your guma cloth around your arms, and bind on your unyielding strength. The strange ceremony in the great hall of the Kura Igigal II, where judgment is handed down, is described in lines 109-115. After accumulating her divine M.E., Inanna moves into her home on earth and takes up residence there. People bring their livestock to her so she can examine it while seated on her sacred throne. Her seat is supported by a lion and a leopard, while her feet are balanced on seven dogs. At what is known as her Gate of Four Eyes, Inanna reclines on a unique throne called Bara Tu Ka An Ni Sai. The ME is under her control in heaven, and the eyes, IGI, are connected to the decision-making process of the ME, because Inanna rules from a throne located at the gate of the four IGI. Working as a shepherd under the direction of a herder requires you to be aware of the following things. When you are churning the butter and straining the milk in your role as a cowherd, you remove the halters from the cows and find happiness in the embrace of your partner, Dumuzid. When you sit on the high dais of your Kura Igigal, where judgment is passed, and enjoy the embrace of your spouse, Dumuzid, you are served by the holy Uzga, unknown word. The Sumerian hymn Sir Three Namsub is translated as the song of the casting of lots, Sir equal sign song, Nam equal sign lot, Sub equal sign to cast. This may be because the hymn was sung in conjunction with cleromancy. In the cemetery of Ur, many game boards are found. The graves were discovered to have human remains within them. To die is the ultimate destiny of a human being, and the verb to die in Akkadian is literally translated as to meet one's fate, anasimtu alaku. In the king's palace in Mari, a copy of the gaming board discovered in Ur's graves was drawn on the paving stones in the forecourt. This copy was also discovered in Ur. The game's rules are unknown, but the number five has some significance. In most cases, the boards are divided into two sections, each containing 20 squares, and are linked by a bridge over water. Some squares feature signs and rosettes that have been stylized as diagonals. Rosettes are typically drawn in the most significant field on two of the field's corners, and immediately before the bridge that connects the other two fields. There are many similarities between the gaming boards used by the Baram priests in Ur and Mari, and other places in Syria and liver models. The Baram priests used these gaming boards to determine God's decisions. The game boards and the model livers consisted of two distinct parts joined together by a bridge. In addition, the clay models of the livers were cut into twenty different squares to represent the distorted appearance of the livers of the animals that were offered as sacrifices. In Lebanon's Kamid el Loz, archaeologists uncovered a board game that dates back to the second millennium BC. The central field was subdivided into twenty equal sections by a row of eight squares that extended outward from its centre. Jan Walkermeyer concluded after examining these liver models that they might have served a purpose distinct from that of the gaming boards and that additional evidence is required before they can be considered precursors. Meyer did not look into the possibility that the gaming boards were the source of inspiration for the liver models. Old gaming boards were only ever discovered in graves and later in the palace of the King of Mari, but due to their growing popularity among the general population, 
they no longer hold any religious or spiritual significance. In these games of chance, players' chances of winning were determined by rolling dice or using astragaloi, a Greek word. The positions of the pawns on the board are decided by the outcome of the throw. The pawns were broken pieces of pottery, and the dice were bones from sheep or oxen. There may have been signs on the flat side of the dice that corresponded to those on the board. Oracle games must have been among the most popular in the ancient world, as evidenced by their prevalence everywhere from the eastern Mediterranean to Egypt and India. Using the ancient Chinese book of divination known as the I Ching is one way to get an answer to a question. A tablet dating back to the 2nd century BC and discovered in Babylon reveals that two competitors were required to follow a track on a board. The text provides extremely specific instructions on how to roll the dice in great detail. Each participant had their own set of five unique pawns and was required to come up with their own throw at the beginning of the game. On the board were twenty squares, five of which had rosette designs drawn. If a pawn were to land on one of these lucky squares, it would result in additional winnings. On the other hand, if a pawn were to fail to land on a rosette, it would result in a penalty. On the other side of the tablet is a curious design drawn with twelve squares, three along the short side and three along the long side, each with a sign of the zodiac and a short note as to whether it was a favourable or unfavourable sign. The long side of the tablet has three squares, while the short side has three squares. The player was represented by a pawn, which was analogous to a planet in the cosmos. The game's objective was to forecast the player's future by comparing them to the planets. This tablet was crafted more than 2,000 years after the earliest gaming boards used in Ur, which were, by that point, gambling boards rather than games of skill. A piece of graffiti that was discovered between the hind legs of two Lamassu statues, protective spirits, that in the 8th century BC stood in front of the palace of Nineveh, provides evidence that the game was still played during the New Babylonian period, the first millennium before our era. This is evident when the graffiti was discovered in the British Museum. The security guards tasked with protecting the palace of the King of Nineveh had carved squares into the stone sculptures so that they could use them as a board for playing games. Identical games have been discovered and carved into sculptures located in various other museums. As a result of what the gods of fate have decided, the gods would gather once a month to decide the world's destinies, and while doing so, they would stand in a circle, constantly genuflecting and praying. When the gods were making their decisions, the mysterious Igigi and Anuna gods had to have been involved in the ritual of fate determination in some way or another. According to Riemann Schneider's explanation, these Igigi and Anuna gods were portrayed by the dice and pawns. Igigi means eye in Sumerian, making it an appropriate term for the astragal eyes of the dice. Anuna is the name of a goddess. According to Riemann Schneider, Igibar means throwing the dice and refers to how the gods decide the king's fate. The literal meaning of the word is to cast an eye, God cast away. During the rites that determined fate, keep a watchful eye on the king. In addition, eyes are depicted on the gaming board's edges. The gods Igigi and Anuna require more information to be made publicly available. The Anuna is sometimes a practitioner of determining fate, and it flutters around like a bat, frequently kneeling and bowing to the gods or trembling in fear. Additionally, the Anuna sometimes looks like it is made of bats. No shrines or temples are built in their honour, and people need to learn their names. There are many different gods of the Anuna in Eridu. It is said that seven judges are waiting for Inanna when she arrives in the underworld, but in reality there are fifty. When Inanna is on the verge of leaving the underworld, the Anuna judges demand that she provide a replacement for the Emi of the underworld, which they have imposed upon her. The beginnings of the Agigi gods are also shrouded in secrecy. It is commonly held that the gods of Anuna are a parallel form of the Agigi, also known as Danunna, which translates to the princely ones. These gods first appeared in ancient Babylonian texts as a translation of the Sumerian Danungal Ine, which literally translates to the great divine princes. He can't help but wonder if the Anuna and the Igigi were not two names for the same pantheon of gods. In a Sumerian epic known as the Etana Epos, 
The Anuna play the role of advisors and deciders of fate, while the Igigi are depicted as creatures that inhabit the Earth's coastlines. Some people have even proposed that the Igigi are all stars that orbit the polar star and never go below the horizon, whereas the Anuna are all of the other stars that go below the horizon and become part of the underworld. The righteous man who we have met before is referenced in a song about the sun god Utu. In this song, the righteous man brings offerings to Utu and asks for long life in return. The king asks the gods to turn their eye towards him in hymns. When the sun god consumes food, the flax in the fields will sprout, and when the sun god drinks water, the rivers will rise. Keep your gaze upon him, keep your gaze upon him. Luzi, who may be the deified king, demands with great emphasis that the sun god cast his eye upon him. When he eats food, the flax in the fields will sprout, and the rivers will rise when the sun god consumes water. Look upon him, gaze upon him, you to you. Keep a close eye on him because he's the wild bull of the Ibaba. I fix my eyes upon you, you son of Ningal with the beard. The bull stalls in the cattle pen are completely occupied. Taking note of the sheep within the fold, you will notice that it is packed with animals. After you have seen him, you gaze at him. Sumerian kings communicated the divine mandates that were given to them through the use of signs. How did the gods communicate their will to those humans, and what form did that communication take? It depicts the sun god sitting on a dais in front of his servant and showing him an object, which may have been symbolic of his divine power and corresponds to the M.E. of kingship used by the deified king. Additionally, it depicts the deified king sitting on a dais in front of his servant. Sulgi is described as having a crown in Himnasulgi P. The people with blackheads approach Sulgi with the request to become their shepherd because of his divine mother Ninsun. The king approaches An with a request, asking him to guarantee him a glorious future. The structure known as Eagle Ma, which translates to Great Temple, was built by Ninsun. He brought Ulgi there with glee on his face. Because he had spent his childhood sitting on her lap, she believed that he came from a good Lugalbanda seed. Lugalbanda gave him the title of Valiant One, equal sign Yul, among the gods that Anne acknowledged as existing. A rewarded him with the scepter for his commitment to upholding justice. He was given the crown of kingship by Ulgi, son of Ninsun, and Lugalbanda, brother of Gilgamesh. Both of these men were his ancestors. The information provided by Ulgi P suggests that Gestin Anna is an incarnation of Dumuzi and Sulgi's sister. As a consequence, the hymn does not attempt to explain the complexities of these relationships. Rather, it emphasizes Ulgi's righteous standing numerous times. According to George Morhan's interpretation of the myth of Inanna and Enki, in which Inanna takes the M.E. from Enki, the M.E. could be interpreted as the banners. This 1956 translation was later followed by Sitchin and others. His grandson, Ryan Morhan, also thinks this is the best evidence we have for the Anunnaki in Jerusalem. There is also the possibility that the ME is included in the definition of each of the disparate objects defined by these MEs. The mouth-opening rites, Kalash, Akkadian Miss Pai, could have bestowed the divine essence upon a statue that was created by somebody else. According to legend, the goddess Inanna wore ornaments that contained the ME within their midst. As a direct consequence, she is stripped of all of her divine powers while on her journey. And Hedwana also recited all of the ME that were considered to belong to Inanna's domain of power during her nocturnal rite, in which she made them visible by naming them individually. The ME could have been other objects, such as the pawns placed on a gaming board and described in the Hittite language with the Sumerogram ME.